there seemed to be certain things that had actually never left our society. And often in South Africa, actually, the experience of history is almost like a continuum. There are never really any conclusive chapters. Like apartheid might have ended, um, but it reaches forward into the present hmm. and possibly the future. This is My African Reading List, a podcast from the House of Literature, where invited guests present their recommendations and must-reads from the African continent and diaspora. This reading list comes from author Masande Nchanga. He sat down with Åse Lappegårdland to talk about writing and reading. My name is Masande Nchanga. I'm a writer. Um, I'm an author, a novelist. I write poetry, short stories. I'm also an editor of a literary journal. And um, I established and run my own um, independent publishing press. But overall, writer and publisher, I think, summarizes it. But you're also a reader. So what do you most like to read? Yes, um, I left out being a reader. Um, I'm, I'm a lecturer and a reader, which I guess are, are two things that I think are linked um, because most of my reading is these days material that I share with my students. And I like to read a variety of books. Um, I'm always encouraging them as well to read as widely as possible and um, to draw from different parts of the world. So I think the last book that I was really enamored with, I suppose, was um, from a Chilean writer, um, Benjamin Labadut, who wrote When We Cease to Understand the World. Um, yeah. What was it with that book that captured you? I really loved the prose and his really imaginative approach to telling um, history, especially 20th century history in regards to World War II and the technological progress that kind of emanated from that moment and the path it set humankind down and, you know, the tension between that path and the natural environment, I think, was something that he wrote in a way that was really refreshing. Um, the prose was really muscular and, yeah, I just felt really inspired by the book. Hmm. What do you mean the prose was muscular? It was very strong, like every sentence was almost indisputable, which is what you are trying to always aim for. I mean, it depends on the type of book you're writing, of course. And because he's writing about a moment that is so familiar, like World War II, and he's trying to stay as close to fact as possible, um, the real pleasure of the book for me, um, or the discovery, were these sentences. And they were muscular in the sense that, um, yeah, they weren't creaky, you know, they weren't limp, they were very strong. I could read them over and over again. Hmm. As you said, you yourself have written short stories, novels, and also poetry in your last publication, Native Life in the Third Millennium. Which is your favorite genre to write in? Or do you have a favorite genre? <laughs> um, I think... 
I will always have this um, attachment to the novel, finally. I think um, it's the medium in which I'm able to most fully express, I think, how I experience the world and what I've learned about the world and what I want to share about the world. I just think it's um, a large enough canvas and it's allowed to be imperfect in a lot of ways. Um, just like life, short stories will always have a close place, um, will always be close to me because I think I made my start with short stories, in fact. Um, it was winning a short story prize that enabled me to actually embark on a writing career. So um, I love them for their mobility. They have to be a little bit tighter than novels. But um, they're a great way to get started as a young writer um, and also to experiment, you know. It was after using um, a story of mine that won a prize as a kind of canvas to experiment on that I was able to write and complete my first novel. Mm. And then lastly, poetry, I think I approach with great reverence um, it's it's almost holy, you know, to me. And I think whenever I am blessed enough with the event of receiving a poem, then I'm grateful. Um, so I think, yeah, um, poetry I revere. Um, short stories I'm grateful to and novels I love. So the poems are something that is brought to you or or that come to you? Yes, I imagine so. Um, absolutely. I think the poem in the native life I spent years working on, actually, which is surprising because um, it isn't that long. But uh, if you pay attention to how it's formatted or divided, you'll see that um, it's in two sections. One being 2009 and the other being 2019. So I think um, poetry is able to distill in such um, a small space, you know, vast amounts of experience and time. But it has to be the right moment for me. Otherwise, it feels contrived and um, it, it doesn't have that that resonance that I look for, even in poetry that I read. Mm. You've talked before about your love of science fiction as well. Um, so when did that start, that love of science fiction books? Oh, wow. I think, um, yeah, my love for science fiction goes so far back. And it's always been something that came to me in different uh, mediums, you know, even before the page. Um, through watching TV, watching really pulpy science fiction movies, and also encountering science fiction concepts in video games as well. And then eventually discovering them um, in, in, in novels. And I think that happened um, early in my adolescence, actually. And at first, I had this idea that um, they were 
much like video games, a way to kind of um, escape from reality. And those were the pleasures that it had to offer. But the more um, I engaged with it and kind of um, encountered more serious writing, um, for example, through cinema, um, watching uh, Andrei Tarkovsky's films, uh, Stalker, and then reading uh, Roadside Picnic uh, by Arkady and Boris Strugatsky, or um, watching Solaris and reading Stanislaw uh, Lem and kind of going through his works as well. And of course, Arthur C. Clarke. Hmm. And science fiction is an obvious uh, inspiration or influence on your latest novel, Triangulum, mm -hmm. which has a fantastic frame and uh, portrays uh, a dystopian future. Uh, however, I read it as just as much about South Africa's recent past yeah. uh, and a story about growing up in that shadow. Yeah. So was that your intention or how do you go about writing both historically and futuristically yeah. in the same book? Um, I did intend to, I didn't know how it was going to turn out um, in the end, but I did definitely intend to write about that recent past as well as the present. And then the more I concentrated on those, um, the future began to kind of emerge from that. And I think I was trying to understand the past first. And then in trying to understand it, I was looking also at its legacies in the present. And there seemed to be certain things that had actually never left our society. And often in South Africa, actually, the experience of history is almost like a continuum There are never really any conclusive chapters, like apartheid might have ended, um, but it reaches forward into the present mm. and possibly the future. So I wanted to understand for myself um, where the country had been and also where it could possibly go. And the more I worked on it, the more similarities I found, actually, you know, um, Because in common, what seemed to be recurring was that it was a group of people and it was a fight for resources, whether they were from the planet or whether it was using other human beings as resources. Mm. And under our current economic system as well, I saw the, the same arrangement. And so I tried to think as far ahead as I could if we followed this path, what could possibly happen? Yeah. While at the same time, it's also this, this story about this young girl and her adolescence, her growing up. Yeah. Uh, and as yeah. I read your books, some of your main themes is youth culture yeah, uh, and alienation, yeah. mental health, drug use and technology is a, is a major one. Yeah. Uh, political and historical issues are there, but maybe not at the forefront, more as a, as a backdrop to the characters that we meet and that we follow. Yeah. And in your debut novel, The Reactive, um, the main character is HIV positive. Uh, and as one American re reviewer wrote, AIDS, it's the kind of heavy-hitting theme we expect from an African novel. Please educate us. We expect poverty and disease and possibly armed conflicts. 
So there is this set of expectations from the West about what African literature, in quotation marks, should right, be. Right, yeah. Does, yeah. does that affect you as a writer? Um, actually, I've been fortunate enough not to be affected as much by it. And I think um, I am aware of them. And I think I do enjoy subverting them. Yeah. But it's not really something I go out of my way to do because I feel as if um, if you write honestly, then you're able to write outside of, you know, these tropes. And um, because Africa as a continent is so unfamiliar to the world, I think it's a place that the world hasn't properly met yet. So for me to simply write um, what feels true and what I see around me, um, you know, just naturally falls outside of those tropes and the cliches that are expected and fortunately ends up subverting these expectations. But yes, I, I have written, I think my last three books have had that focus, you know, on um, on youth culture. And I think a lot of that also has to do with coming from a very young democracy, yeah. And there's this parallel, you know, between like my characters growing up and these transformations that are happening in the country. And um, it's almost like a trilogy now. And I, I suppose now it's probably time to, you know, move on to older characters, perhaps <laughs> middle age. Um, but definitely there are these things that I think about in terms of history and society. But um, at the end of the day, I do look at my work as like um, literary. And for me, one of the most important things about like literary output is being able to reach people, you know, being able to reach a writer, I mean a reader, um, and console them in some way. You know, it's a communication between myself and another person at the end of the day. Yeah. So um, I put a lot of importance on what's human as much as what's conceptual or um, intellectual or whatever. Yeah. And how is, has the reception and the response been? Have you met any readers that have been touched? <laughs> um, I have, actually. Um, I've been blessed with that. Yeah. Um, there have been quite a number of people who have written to me, um, you know, really moved by the book. And there's also people who've um, written to me who've been um, really kind of intellectually inspired by it, you know, um, whether it's for academic work or something else that they were working on. And, um, yeah, there are also lots of people who've um, reached out saying that they'd love to see it on screen as an adaptation. And it will be, right? Yes, yes, yes. Triangle um, will be a TV series. Yes, yes. I did. I did sign um, a deal uh, with a Hollywood studio, um, SK Global. Um, but we'll see. You know, they take years. These things, um, and it's such a a different world, actually, um, to the literary landscape. It's a lot more cutthroat. But it's exciting, just the same. Absolutely. Looking forward to see yeah. what comes of it. During the pandemic, uh, as you mentioned, you, you founded a pop-up publisher, or maybe it's not pop-up, maybe it will be more permanent, yeah. Model C Media. 
what was the motivation and what what do you want to do with this I think after I came out of uh, writing Triangulum, which was quite a big book, and I worked with three different editors, you know, across three continents, um, from Two Dollar Radio, my American publishers, and Columbus, Ohio, to Jack Caranda Books in London, and then finally um, Penguin Random House Essay in Johannesburg and Cape Town. Um, it was a huge book. There were a lot of details in it. And at times, I mean, the first draft of it was more than 100,000 words. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was working with these three editors. And of course, um, I each of them brought something different to the book. Um, the My American publishers were very adventurous and they brought this enthusiasm enthusiasm and energy and imagination to the book. And of course, um, my South African editors kept it as accurate as it possibly could. Um, they're the people that I could refer to about certain things in my research because it covers such a large span of time. And um, finally, the UK editors kind of came in at the end um, and also offered a contribution, I believe, actually. But nonetheless, um, I found myself at times, you know, almost behaving like a, a little bit of a tyrant director because <laughs> <laughs> big publishers have um, production schedules and publishing schedules. And sometimes someone would pick up the book as an editor and only work from a certain perspective when certain things had changed. And I would constantly go back and read the book in its entirety and maybe tell them that um, on a particular page, the diagram, the triangle, triangle is facing the wrong way or something is wrong with um, the numbers in the recording um, sessions. And so all of these tiny details. Yeah. And it became very huge and almost ungainly. Um, but in the end, we pulled it off. So I walked away from that with a desire to um, experience writing something where I had a lot more control. Yeah. Yeah, it's something which was a lot smaller as well. And with an interest, actually, of seeing whether or not I could take a book from a thought and kind of materialize it on my own through publishing to the point where it entered the cultural landscape, was catalogued, and um, I think it was rewarding. I learned a lot about publishing, actually. Yeah, yeah. and now you've just sent a second book to, to yes. print. Yes, yes. Yeah? Um, yeah, it, it's, it's growing into its own thing, really. I'm discovering a lot of interesting, adventurous young writers um, and who are willing to collaborate, you know, and... For now, it's still a non-profit. Uh, we donate all of our proceeds um, to causes that the writers care about. Hmm. Um, but as we continue, the business model will evolve and hopefully it'll grow into something bigger. But yes, we have a new book coming out. Um, I think by the time this podcast comes out, it will be out. Um, all I can reveal for now is the title and it's called Sketches. 
And yeah, it's at the printers right now. That's a good, uh, good timing that you bring up the, the new uh, voices that you want to introduce because this is my African reading list. Yeah. And uh, I want to hear what writer or writers that you want to highlight for us. Well, um, a very interesting question. South Africa has um, such a great diversity, you know, of writers and a very varied literary history as well with people writing from different periods, um, anti-apartheid writers, post-apartheid writers, and what I would call, I would call like contemporary uh, writers. Yeah. Um, and I think to begin with the latter, contem- in contemporary writers, as far as South Africa goes, um, I would really recommend a writer called Imran Kovadia. And um, he's written this amazing novel, which um, covers about 40 years in um, South Africa's uh, Recent past and present. Um, I think, yeah, it begins in twenty uh, in nineteen seventy. It spans to kind of twenty ten, and it's this um, novel composed of interlinking uh, short stories hmm. called uh, Tales of the Metric System. And its brilliance is how it's able to navigate this society that's actually quite fractured, going across age and race and class. And also across decades, you know, um, to chart the height of anti-apartheid activism all the way up until the South African uh, World Cup in 2010. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. And just the changes, you know, from the excitement of new liberation until, you know, um, disillusionment kind of setting in. So he's a great contemporary writer. He's also written um, in science fiction as well. Hmm. Uh, yeah, he's got a science fiction novel called The Spy in Time, which is great. Uh, as far as um, the category before that, post-apartheid um, literature, I would recommend a writer called Kaysela Deka, Um He's just really great in terms of understanding the social landscape of um, the period of the early 90s to about 2000 Hmm. and what young people were like and what they were dealing with at the time and what South African cities were like as well, as well as um, addressing this newly found tension between um, the traditions of the people who were previously excluded from the mainstream of South African society and the interactions with modernity and um, also kind of breaking new ground in dealing with sexuality as well as mental health. Hmm. Um, Where did you first uh, come across his books? um, I came across his work for the first time when... um, I was in university, actually, during my first year. Hmm. Yeah. um, He tragically only wrote two novels before his death. His third one was published 
posthumously. So when I entered university, actually, he had just passed away uh, by suicide. Hmm. Um, and, you know, it was a great tragedy. And for a while, his work was everywhere. And I had this brilliant professor, actually, um, who was able to introduce his work to me in a way um, that was really captivating and felt relevant, um, even though he is a generation older. It kind of had resonance uh, with me, I, th I felt. Yeah. Um, Which was the first title that you read by him? The first title I read by him was a book called The Quiet Violence of Dreams. Um which is the one that deals mostly, you know, with these issues that I spoke of, um, mm. with a protagonist who's uh, queer and suffers from mental health issues, which also actually might be spiritual ailments. You know, the book is never really conclusive mm. as to far what's as as far as to what's happening with Seppo. Um, but it broke a lot of new ground in terms of writing things that were previously considered taboo yeah. in South African literature um, for whatever reason. And I think the category of um, anti-apartheid, I think, um, yeah, that one is so vast, you know. Mm -hmm. We have an incredible like pantheon of writers who agitated against apartheid and also like different eras, I suppose, from the 1950s with the drum writers um, all the way to uh, the 70s, I guess, which is when um, our Nobel Prize winners would start, like Gordima and Kutsia. Yeah. yeah, I think yeah, many of our listeners will will know Gordima and Kutsia, maybe Njabul and Debele. Yes. But I'm sure there are many more that we should discover as well. Yes, exactly. And thank you, actually, for mentioning Jawul uh, Ndebele. I think he would probably um, take my post, I mean, my anti-apartheid um, uh, favorite. Yeah. So Jawul Ndebele, Kesela Deka, and Imran Kofadia in successive um, eras. I think what was great about Jawul, uh, and he writes about this in his academic work as well, um, was this concept of the rediscovery of the ordinary. And he was very influenced, actually, by Dubliners, by James Joyce. Hmm. So it was interesting how he wrote uh, his first book, Fools, and other stories, because they were happening within the context of apartheid, but foregrounded, you know, um, stories of childhood, adolescence, young adulthood, family and relationships. And um, he believed actually even under oppression, focusing, you know, on what's human and what's seemingly insignificant in times of political turmoil can yeah. actually be, you know, um, uh, an action of protest. Yeah. Would you say he's influenced your own work in some way? Definitely, I would say that concept yeah. has absolutely um, been an influence. I It's funny because I was kind of, I always felt like I was drawn naturally to it. And that's what's always surprising, you know, about writers and about humanity is that um, 
we aren't that different, you know, even when it's decades apart. And um, as long as we keep writing and we keep recording this, we'll always discover it, you know, um, like looking at it, if you look at him as an author and myself, on the surface, it would appear that we have very little in common. But actually, you know, getting into the work, you discover these these parallels. Yeah. Yeah. I think one thing that I, I should have asked you earlier on the first writer that you mentioned is because you uh, set up these uh, three categories of yeah. of South African literature. Uh, what does the contemporary category entail? How would you try and define it? <laughs> <laughs> what how in how in what way does it differ from from yeah. post apartheid uh, writers? To be honest, I. I, I'm kind of on a crusade, like a solo crusade with this category, <laughs> because I just I found that I, I felt like it was time, you know, to to hang up post-apartheid. And at first, I experimented with post-post-apartheid, but I think um, we've definitely passed a moment now that's in reaction, you yeah. know, um, to the advent of our first democratic elections. It's been enough time and we've had major um, historical kind of events take place since then. Um, for example, the ARV crisis, you know, which ended in 2003 when hmm. we had um, a president who was very close to being an AIDS denialist. Yeah, And it was the first time we experienced as a country this kind of um, unidirectional authority from our liberation party. The population felt we were in crisis and we needed one thing, but um, the government exercised its power to kind of not listen to the people. And that was a fracture um, that marked its own historical um, era. And then after that, of course, we have roads must fall and fees must fall. So we're quite a ways from the 1994 elections. Yeah. Yeah. And so, we're responding to a different society, I feel, by now. Yeah. So you would say that these writers write about different topics, either about the society that you live in today mm -hmm. or, or other issues that are not necessarily as connected to, to the apartheid history. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think a lot of it also is introducing new discourse that didn't exist yeah. um, in post-apartheid literature. And, you know, a lot of post-apartheid literature was actually bittersweet because as much as um, it had concerns about the future, there was still this optimism and this euphoria from liberation still being so new. Mm. You know, um, so the contemporary writers are people who have... Um, lived through that period and now are actually people who find themselves um, unequivocally, you know, in opposition to the ruling party that was once our liberators. Yeah. And on top of that, you know, um, also writing differently about race, also writing differently about gender as well. Hmm. And where would you place yourself? <laughs> 
I find that you you definitely write about some of these themes, but you also uh, explore the history of of the post-apartheid uh, era. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I maybe you straddled the two. I tend to be a straddler. Of, <laughs> I don't like belonging too strictly to kind of um, any category or club. And I remember taking it on. For example, someone else who might have felt as I did was a person who might have, um, and this was a popular sentiment that, you know, um, we're tired of writing about apartheid and that writing about apartheid is something that's um, been overdone and there's nothing new to say about it. And I remember coming across the sentiment at yeah. some point and disagreeing very, very strongly. On the other hand, I understood what they meant. And the problem is how we write about apartheid. But um, I'm someone who's very much interested uh, in every aspect of our literary history and our country's history, as well as maybe, you know, more work about the future as well. So I think I would, um, I could fit into the contemporary but with a caveat that I write um, across subjects and across genres. Yeah. Well, Sandra, thank you for being part of uh, my African reading list. Thank you so much uh, for having me. That was lovely. Thank you. You've listened to my African reading list. The complete reading list can be found in our show notes. This episode was edited by the House of Literature. Music by Ibu Sisuku.